0: Welcome to the latest episode of Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schreiber, and with me today is Ace Callwood, Director at Envoy. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Ryan. Really excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. So, Ace, why don't you tell our uh, audience, like, what types of problems do you uh, solve?
1: Ooh, you man. Um, at, at Envoy, we're a firm that focuses on negotiation and facilitation and helping humans optimize the way they make decisions and the decisions they make. Uh, and in a former world, I've been a tech founder, so cool. built a couple of tech companies. I teach entrepreneurship and innovation um, at my alma mater and elsewhere. And then lastly, I've kind of lived in this realm of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so as far as problems go, I've found that most of mine, the majority, are human-centric, like humans interacting with humans. How do we do that differently, better Um, And and perhaps more compassionately, uh, but have had the privilege and the pleasure of solving some like nitty-gritty tech and business-related issues or problems as well. So a host of problems. I just love problems that need solving.
0: Awesome. And uh, the human ones are always the the toughest ones, right? The tech ones, we like to pride ourselves, but the human ones are the really...
1: If yeah. it weren't for humans, we uh, probably'd have less problems. Is, yeah. is how that goes.
0: Well, with the coming of the robots and AI, I'm certain uh, that that things will get uh, maybe. Bring
1: it on!
0: I would. Lo- I'm kidding.
1: Mostly, I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> yeah. The robots are not going <laughs> to take our jobs. But uh, yeah, I think if we like took the humanity out of some. Things we'd have less problems. We'd also have less fun and like a, a yeah. less interesting world to exist in. So it it all comes with context.
0: So so when you get engaged to solve a problem, like how do you? What's your approach? Like if you describe, like you know, what's the approach you go through?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the I, the first is problem recognition, right? Like mm-hmm. problem identification. Um, my my mom's an engineer, and so okay. I grew up with garbage in garbage out right like just like a a computer kind of a centric uh way of seeing the world and and my mom's incredible but like that was the foundation of if we're not solving the right problem if we don't know what problem we're solving or the core of why we have an issue an elegant solution to the wrong problem is going to be an elegant solution to the wrong problem, right? So for me, it's making sure we're doing the right thing, we're solving the right problem, and fully contextualize and understand why there's an issue in the first place. And then we can get really creative about coming up with ideas and executing, you know. But but if we're if we have not made sure we're digging into the right thing, we're kind of missing the mark from the onset. And so that's really important for me, a lot of techniques to get there. I like five whys um, as one of the ways to get there. Um, I just got got to use that technique with a bunch of NASA engineers uh, not too long ago. And, yeah, they came in with, like, a high-level problem and said, this is what we need to solve for. I was like, you may be right, but uh, I expect the groups I work with and my students and my teams and myself, uh, I say, show your work a lot. All right, Like show your work. You might have the right answer, but let's make sure we know that the answer's right. And five whys is a really good way. Hey, this is a problem. Why? Well, because this doesn't work right. OK, then the first thing wasn't actually the problem. The second thing you said was, why doesn't that thing work right? Well, because so and so always does this. Why? And if we do five whys, it typically gets us to the core layer of hey, here is the crux of why five layers above we have a problem. If we don't dig enough to get there, then again, we're solving the wrong thing, and the underlying problem will still exacerbate some of the issues or conflicts or tensions we have organizationally in in our teams as we roll product out, et cetera.
0: Well, if you're working with uh, engineers, I know you work with a broad set of people, but engineers – how do you introduce the empathy part? Because that's the thing that came to me late as an engineer. I've been doing this for a long time. And it yeah. used to be when I started out, we drew um, people with stick figures on requirements and then just went off in our little happy wonderland of the solution, <laughs> right? But then it's it's taken me time to learn that, you know, who is affected by this problem and what's our life. So how do you introduce the empathy um, in your approach? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it's it's really nice for, for me, who comes from this soft kind of skill set, right? Like a soft human driven versus the hard there's a right answer and a wrong answer I've always excelled in gray areas Um, not morally or ethically but just like Mm -hmm. there's not a hard right answer we could kind of make a case for either Um, that has always been my sweet spot and so I think my natural inclination is to you know talk about feeling and you know how humans operate and like give some compassion to the engineers or the technical folks I talk to. And what I've found is making the case that the variable is the human, right? Like, and we have to design around that variable and we don't know what they're going to do. And all we can do is mitigate risk and kind of soften some of the edges of what humans do, boneheaded or otherwise, or emotional, et cetera. I mean, that's just the reality of building product, we build product, we build things, we solve problems for humans. As we started out talking about, if we're not factoring them in, we are missing a core part of the equation that we are trying to solve for. And if you kind of take some of that element of empathy and that humans are humans, but put it in a context which our audience, the technical engineer might understand, and not all engineers are just yeah. linear Spock types, right? Um But by and large, as we think about how we approach solving problems, I think for all of this, meet people where they are and use the language they use is something I talk about often. That's a big piece. And so I know that most engineers orient to, well, this is the right answer. And why would we think otherwise? It's okay, This is the right answer. But a human who's being boneheaded is going to do something different. We also have to design for that.
0: Yeah. So. How have you seen a difference in – so you engage with executives. I know we were talking earlier. You work with executive leaders. You yep. work with engineers. Is there any group – do you engage in them any differently or do you kind of engage the same way in, in the same approach? Maybe adapt it slightly different. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. we We tweak, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know – But for me, back to that human piece, like I'm just engaging with a human Um, as an engineer, as an executive, as the CEO of insert Fortune 500 or, you know, the fresh out of college or in my context, teaching like college students who aren't even fresh out and are just trying to solve problems back to that meeting people where they are. You know, in some audiences, I assume a level of understanding about an issue right? Um, Like we've got high level of context around why there's a problem. And we need to get really creative about how we ideate, generate ideas and solve for it. In other groups, I have to orient very, very specifically to this is the problem. And this is why it's not X, Y, or Z other problem. This is why we're focused here. And so for me, it's, it's, real-time aggregating data points about the audience, about the people I'm working with, and making a decision on where we start, where we go, and the path um, with which we get there. Um, so it's a lot of real-time kind of data crunching in, in my head, yeah. if you will, that says, all right, this audience is pushing on these things and that means there's some friction here. We need to unpack that. But if we go a different route and get back to it, they'll be more susceptible or accepting of pushing through that tension. Um, so that's a long way of, of saying it varies. I don't approach every group the same because every group is different. Um, but for me, there are kind of some core pieces. Do we know that we have a problem? Mm-hmm. If we don't, I orient to a group differently that way. Yeah. Um, if like we understand there's a problem but don't know how to solve it, I orient to a group very differently. And then there's kind of the third bucket of we know we have a problem, we think we have a solution, and then it's just kind of checking our work to make sure we've gotten to the right place or unpacking a couple of things that we might have missed. And so it kind of depends on where they are in the process rather than what their role is, executive engineer, et cetera.
0: I got you. Well, you know, one of the things I often talk about is they're sort of building the right thing and building the thing right. Mm. You sort of alluded it to earlier, right? And so. You know, but but it's it's the subtle transition from problem domain to solution domain, right? Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I've learned in my career is that, you know, we have engineers on my team. I'm like, don't come up with the first idea, right? You know, explore multiple options, and then yeah. there it is. So how do you transition? So from the we have a problem, we know what the problem is developed, and how do you sort of transition into the solution space? And then how do you go about, you know, helping teams sort of see that solution out?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that is that is a lot of where I spend my time is – Problem recognition for all of the reasons we just unpacked, but idea generation is where we often fall short, right? Mm. Like as teams, as groups, we get to, hey, this is the problem and here's the solution. And next, let's go execute. Um, And rarely do, rarely is that the right process. So I I throw out a couple things here. One of my favorite talks to give is called The Anatomy of a Good Idea. Um, And it's, it's really unpacking, what makes for a good idea, and how we get there. And a couple, I'll give you the, like, the quick nuggets. The first is we often orient to brainstorming when we yeah. think about idea generation, right? Brainstorming is used something like 45% of the time when teams get together and try and work through ideation. It's not a great technique. Huh. It's not the worst technique. Yeah. There are 300 ideation check- techniques out there 43, 45% of the time we use brainstorming. We are missing opportunities to use other techniques to get there. And often brainstorming rewards the loudest in the room or the most senior in the room. Right. So if your boss is in the room and you're brainstorming, the only thing you're trying to do is not throw out the stupid idea and lose your job. (laughs) Right. If you're the loudest in the room, like I typically am, and Ryan knowing you, you probably are as well. You know, we often just bogart or take space if we're not being really empathetic back to those humans right and so what i've found virtual the virtual environment's really interesting as a facilitator what i've found is we've kind of democratized how people share ideas because we're virtual Mm -hmm. so it's easy for me to say hey you know so and so hasn't said anything all session and i can see that like they haven't contributed because I get this gallery view of everybody on Zoom. Yeah. And I can shoot them a message and say, hey, you got any thoughts? Do you want to add in? Hey, I'm going to make some space for you to throw something in the mix. When we're typically in a room or dealing with egos and personalities, it's really hard for the folks who are introverted or soft-spoken or don't feel like they can contribute to have voice in a conversation. Brainstorming does not is not particularly conducive to getting all of the voices heard yeah. in a session. So that's one of the first things I talk about. Brain writing as an alternative is great. Um, You know, brain writing, simply the idea of everybody in the group having a piece of paper and we've oriented to the problem and we jot down three, five, however many in an allotted time ideas we have. And then we pass the paper to the left and the person reads through them. Take like the first 20, 30 seconds to read through the ideas and then add to them. And so we see that we might be sparked by an idea that was on the paper and we can do that as many times as we want. I like to do until I get my paper back okay. and then we break down and we've, we look at call it the hundred ideas that we have rather than the one that we thought was good out of the gate in a brainstorming session. And so brain writing allows everybody to have a voice and all of us to build on top of the ideas we got from our colleagues or our peers, our boss included, right? That can happen virtually, anonymously. A scribe or a note taker gets all of the docs in via email, aggregates everything. And then when we get to the session where we want the team to be involved, we work through the ideas that we got rather than competing for space to share them. Wow. And so brainwriting as an alternative to brainstorming. is just one of them. Um, I like to use worst idea a lot. Okay. Um, so often we end up in an ideation session and we hold back. We We don't say that stupid thing. And so what I prompt groups to do is say, hey, all right, what is the worst idea you can come up with right now? I want to hear those. I don't want to hear good ideas. I want to hear really bad ideas. What I have found is something like 95, 96% of the time I do something like that, an element of one of the worst ideas I heard ends up in the final product or solution we come up with. Um, And it does two things. It changes the tenor of the session, Uh right? Like we're not locked into a room. We have to come up with an idea, even if we are... We start laughing. We start sharing the thing that we didn't want to look stupid. It gives everybody uh, the – it gives them permission to play. And that's what ideation is. It's saying we've got a problem. Let's think of all the really creative ways to come to a solution. And then let's filter through and see what's practical, what's probable. Uh, But worst idea gets us there in a lot of ways, particularly when we hit a wall. I use worst idea. Because that's when people start playing and having fun, and then we get another you know twenty thirty ideas out of that. Um, lastly, I'll throw out um, it's an empathetic type of of technique. Um, it's called other people's shoes, okay. and so you know we can pick like a person we really like, a prolific engineer, um, a founder we really dig, a world leader. And I say, hey, if you were, so think of somebody you aspire to or admire or think of as a role model, how would they solve this problem? So if you were Edie Amin, how would you solve this problem? I hope nobody aspires to Edie Amin. Um, If you were Angela Merkel, how would you solve this problem? If you were Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Instagram just went down, um, how would you solve this problem, right? Like (laughs) fill in person, could be a good person, could be a bad person. Really, all we're trying to do is get you off of your mark. Right? Trying to get you out of your lane of thinking and say somebody else would solve this problem a different way. Let's think about their lens and then contextualize their potential solutions in the way that we might approach it. And so it's just shifting. It doesn't have to be a good or bad person yeah. with no value judgment, just different that starts to bring in another perspective. And so what I'll kind of synthesize all of that to say is the 80-20 rule of ideation – is 80% of our ideas are gonna be garbage. Mm -hmm. 20% will be quality. If we come up with one idea for a particular problem, there's an 80% chance we've missed the mark, right? If we come up with 10, we've got two decent ideas, 100, 1,000, a million, that 20%, we can then filter, and I think we get too quickly to, this won't work because, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a person in the room who's like, no, 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 this this won't work. We should just nip, nip that in the bud. If we create enough value, resources will come is a thing that we say in the startup world often. Um, So if we come up with a bunch of really interesting ideas, that budget or that timeline or the personnel we have allotted for the project, all of those parameters might be hard parameters. Often they're not. And so if we've just played and come up with ideas and then we filter back through parameters We might find that the parameters have changed or that the idea is interesting enough to go get more budget or more resources. And we miss that opportunity if we kill the idea too early or we don't come up with enough to filter through. And so that's the, I don't know, the crash course, the Cliff's Notes on how I think about ideation, but that's why it's important.
0: Well, it's interesting. Brain uh, writing, as it is, I, I do a twist on that, but I've never heard the past. So normally when I do it, Everybody spends, um, in, in two minutes, come up with five unique ideas and write them down. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then there's a sharing. I, I didn't pick up. I've never heard of sort of the passing around. I like that. I'll have to yeah. add that to
1: it. Yeah, just keep it moving and you know, people get to react to it, right? Yeah. It's what happens in brainstorming. And yeah. we, we use like core tenets of improv, right? The yes and okay. we hear all the time. Um, you know, we, this is my idea. And somebody says, yes, and we could, you know, add wings to it. Yeah. And that's great. Brain writing does the same thing. I get to look at somebody's ideas, jot more that come to me as a result of what I just read, and then I get to pass. And so what we've effectively done is curated a crop of really interesting ideas, compounded upon them, and then we've aggregated them and read them out as yeah. a team. But again, it kind of democratizes our levels of playing field for those who might not share or feel silly or don't want to upset the boss or we've all oriented to the senior person in the room and how they think. And so we want to kind of pander to that. It's just, it it allows us to do the real work, which is not navigating politics. Mm -hmm. It's coming up with good ideas and then filtering. Like, let's do that and that only, and then let's go back to like existing in a culture where there are politics and there are emotions and there are people. Like, we have to navigate and plan for that as well. But if we design the process around removing some of the bias and just getting good ideas, it allows for a better session and ultimately better ideas at the end of the session.
0: So let's talk about that. So when you ultimately, you know, you got lots of ideas, many more than typically you have money and time yeah. to implement. Right. Yeah. So at some point, it goes from um, saying yes to saying no. Sure. So, so walk us through how do you go from that? Hey, we got all these great ideas. What should we do first? Mm-hmm. Is there a certain technique, or do you adjust it as you work with different groups?
1: Yeah. So you, I mean, you'll always adjust, but the the main process, and I kind of started with. Uh, I like to say ideas. Ideas are like campfires, right? So when we start to nurture a crop of ideas or we're starting to explore, it's like we've just put kindling on a really small flame. Mm -hmm. We don't want to put logs on it too early. We don't want to smother it. It needs air to breathe. And so saying no too early starts to stifle or smother the growth of that campfire. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a it's an awful analogy, but I, I think it works, <laughs> right? Um, I'm tracking with you, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that idea of just giving the idea room to breathe says, let's not get into why it won't work yet, right? Okay. But after we get to a good crop, whatever the number is or whatever the time allotment is, right? Sometimes we are like we're going for fifty ideas. Sometimes we're going for as many ideas as we can come up with in twenty minutes, right? Yeah. Um so we've got a good crop. Then we come back and we've got to challenge assumptions on the parameters. So listing parameters is really helpful. How, how long do we have to do this thing? How many people, like what resources have been assigned to solving this problem? If none, we've got to solve for that. But if we've got a lot, let's look at what those parameters are. And then we come back and say, before we start looking at ideas, so we've kind of set all the ideas aside. Then let's go to parameters. I don't like starting with parameters. You could, but I don't love to open with what are the parameters for solving this. I like to open with what's the problem, right? If we introduce parameters too early, we kind of anchor to them. And like in the back of our head, we don't offer ideas and we don't commit to ideas because we're thinking about parameters. So I like to come after we've done ideas and say, all right, what are our parameters for solving this? Who told us, like who set the parameters? What biases do they have? What motivations do they have? How does this align with a strategic objective of our team or our organization or our stakeholders? And then are these parameters actually true, right? Somebody said we got a $10 budget here. Why can't it be 20 And it's like, well, so-and-so said. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. Like maybe yeah. the budget has flex. And it's not let's know what the budget actually is, but like is this a place we can push if we've got an idea that's interesting enough? And so going down the list of resources available is really helpful to say what ideas might fit, what parameters are true, what parameters are hard, what are a little mushier, what can we push on? Once we've got a good understanding, it's kind of like problem recognition, Mm -hmm. parameter kind of solidification, a a term I think I'm making up, but like, (laughs) can we go back and make sure we feel good about the parameters? And after that, after that, Let's go through our crop of ideas and see which ones link or track to fitting in the parameters that we think are hard and fast and can't be changed. And then let's do a second list of ideas that if one or two parameters change would be really interesting. And so when we go back to the powers that be or stakeholders, we can say, look, we've got three really good ideas we like. I like to kind of be at less than five, more than one for ideas that might fit. And then we go back to our stakeholders and say, we can do this, but we can do this if, and then we've got the like, hey, these would be really cool if we could find a little bit more budget, or if we could add one person to the team, or if you'd give us an extra month to go execute. So often we stay in that box of, well, so-and-so said, often arbitrarily so, having run a shop of just like, It's not so much makeup parameters, but it's like you've got to give somebody boundaries to exist in. And so if I if somebody came back to me as a team and said, Hey, we need another three weeks to get this thing done, that's a no brainer. But if they've only operated from you have two weeks to execute, that's a different thing. And if they come back to me and say we need three weeks, I'm like, No, it has to be done in two weeks because of this deadline, that's a hard parameter. But I think we don't consider if we can push on parameters enough. And so that's a part of the process for me. Can we come up with ideas, curate them to hard parameters to maybe would be interesting if we could shift and then go back to stakeholders and see if we can get buy-in around a couple ideas.
0: It's interesting. So your parameters is my, my constraints. I'm doing yeah. the, 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 yeah. the yeah, change yeah. here. But you're right. I mean, you know, a lot of times there are constraints, time, money, et cetera. And, sure. you, and you need to figure out which of those are can be pushed back on. But ultimately, as a designer, you need constraints, right? sure you, you have to have constraints to push again it otherwise it's it's infinite, and the solution space yeah. um is infinite and The other thing you picked up on was sort of the strategic objectives and you know in my world, you know it's outcomes is there's a, a term it's 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 been around for a while, it's a lot more popular these days, and that's something I've learned early on is in the ideation, when do you introduce um, this is the outcomes we're trying to achieve? And there's two schools of thoughts. You know, one is afterwards. So you brainstorm all these things and then you use it to filter. Mm -hmm. Like, which of these? Another school of thought is, no, up front, you know? And when I say outcomes, it's things like, you know, improve um, this or increase that or reduce that. So you sort of should define the outcomes often for the people, the customer outcomes, and for the business, and then use those as a way to constrain um, your ideation, and then yep. in my community, people go back and forth. Sure. You, you don't. Yeah. There's not a right or wrong, but but normally, what you want to do at some point is you want to run those ideas by. What are we trying to achieve, and are they just going to get closer? Does this align? Yeah, right. to, to that. Right. And then at what effort and cost? Right, you know, because you know, not all ideas are equal in terms of the effort and cost. And the other thing I've been, I've been. Thinking about a lot and working on is how do you test out this idea? So, before you go invest two months, right, and go yep. heads down, what can we do to learn cheaply mm-hmm. that gives us feedback like, yeah, th- this is, I can prototype something, I can do that, versus, hey, we're going to take two months and, and go work on it and we'll come back in two months and hopefully succeed. So, h- how do you? Once you have these ideas, do you introduce ways or to like test and like how do you sort of try out some of these things maybe before you kind of go all in or tell your customers to kind of go all in?
1: Yeah, yeah. So before I even get there, one of the things you just threw out like. That idea of outcomes, right? Like we've got to get work done for a reason. Yeah. Um, I, I like to frame those as how might we statements okay. after the problem recognition. Mm-hmm. So, hey, this is the problem. How might we do X better? How might we solve for? How might we mitigate the risk of? Nice. And so how might we statements help us orient to, you know, it, it's – there's something psychological about not making it a hard, like language matters, mm-hmm. right? And so instead of we have to X, it's how might we? It 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 lends this air of exploration, which is really helpful as you yeah. go into the ideation process. Yeah. And so how might we solve world hunger is very different than you have to go solve world hunger, go, <laughs> right? Like then you get to explore, you get to play, you get to think of all the things yeah. that might work, might not work. But it gives back to that permission. I think a lot of this process, problem solving, idea generation, execution, is giving people permission to explore, to play, to do the things they do well, and draw from all of their experiences, not just professional, to get to the most interesting, elegant, and effective solution. And I think we get locked into, I'm trying not to lose my job a lot of times, or I'm trying not to step on any toes or tick anybody off. And if we've created a space where it's not about keeping or not keeping our job, and it's not about offending anyone, it's simply we're all here to explore potential solutions to a problem. And then we'll go back to, again, adding constraints or parameters. Yeah. So that how might we statement, I think, drives all the way through as a this is what we're exploring and we're just exploring. Yeah. Maybe we come up with something good, maybe we maybe the problem can't be solved. No. You know rarely is that the case if ever, but like maybe yeah. let 's just leave space for that um and then, as it comes to to action, I do this a lot when I set up like d i committees and working groups to solve specific things. I like to filter specifically as we think about potential ideas and then paths of action. Like once we've got, hey, we need to go execute on this idea, the one or two that we think are really good and we want to go test and explore. You know, there are a couple different approaches. When, when we're talking about product, right, and you and I come from the design thinking world, it's all of the same pieces, which is let's prototype it and let's play and test and can we tighten the feedback loop and work through iterations. And so – you know, that is often true in the tech world. We play with landing pages, Um, you know, we see what click-through rates look like, so on and so forth. Um, Sometimes we often, I mean, customer development as an ethos, starting with talking to people and exploring how they would actually use a thing is different than asking them if they would use a thing, right, and so the process of getting feedback is, is fascinating, like, we often go out into the world and say, "Hey, this is my baby. Do you think it's pretty?" <laughs> and the reality is, um, every baby is ugly. Is I'll just make that hard statement. Um, nobody has a pretty baby. Even if you think your baby's prettier than others, it's all relative because babies are ugly. Um, <laughs> that's okay. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> you, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Babies are ugly. Um, no, it's it's just it. It's an important piece to remember is that. If we ask people the question in a way that we want them to give us an answer, we've already biased their answer. Yeah, we're leading the witness at that right. point. Right. Like, hey, is my baby pretty? Like, the natural, natural right. response is. Yeah, of course. And that's back to understanding how humans operate. We don't want to offend the person asking us that question. Yeah. If if I say, hey, tell me all the ways my baby's like, mm, maybe not pretty yet. Uh, that's a different question. Yeah. And they say, well, yeah, its nose is a little big. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. just it's just like, I don't know why there are five ears. Babies are supposed to have two. <laughs> like, whatever that answer is, you know, all joking aside, it's, we're on a fact-finding mission. And if we think about it, rather than, I need this to be perfect already, and I want somebody to corroborate that, and more, this is bound to be flawed. The faster I can get to understanding where it's flawed and how I can fix it, the better I can make the product. Like It's all framing and positioning, and I think that's really important in the process. And so from a testing perspective, can I go to the market? I I often ask my entrepreneurship students, how do I get my money out of your pocket, Hmm. Right. Like that's my question as a founder. How do I get my money out of your pocket? And it's to make the best product that solves their problem. So they have to articulate what the problem is and they have to tell me how they would go about solving it, not how they want it solved, which is different. Right? That goes back to Henry Ford. If I had asked people what they wanted, they'd have told me a faster horse. Right? Um Steve Jobs said something probably very similar about the iPhone. Uh and so unless you're a Henry Ford or a Steve Jobs. And to be clear, I am not either of those two and will never be, you know, unless we are those types of prolific thinkers and inventors, our job is to go to the market and figure out what they need solved. And then our job is to come back and run through that process of solving a thing elegantly with as many ideas as we can and then filtering back. But we've got to go to the market before we start the process to understand what the problem is and how they might want it solved, we've got to do our work internally. And then we have to go back to the market and roll a product out or roll out a prototype or say, Hey, put your hands on this or your eyes on this and tell me where I've missed the mark. And we go through that process. Rinse repeat is kind of how that works. Um, So that's kind of on the hard product side. That's how I'd approach it on kind of the human side. It's similar. Like, Hey, this is what I've come up with. This is why I've come up with it. This is what it's supposed to do for you, and if I've missed the mark, I need your feedback, right? Like if I if I'm not actually solving your problem or I've missed the cultural implications or the societal implications of how I've tried to solve a thing, how I've tried to communicate this initiative or how I've tried to help a community that I don't know super well. Like I've got to get as close to those people as I can and have them kind of shape and guide what I'm building. Um, We often miss that part. We want to do this internal work of ideating and problem identification, but how do I get my money or how do I provide value to the people I'm trying to serve?
0: They've got to be a part of the process, too. Yeah, I mean, I often talk about building bridges of empathy through yeah. up front. So to, to your point, if you don't understand the problem and haven't walked in their shoes, when you come back with, hey, how I've solved it, they're going to re- reject it outright. if They don't yeah. know that you care about it. You yep. know? And so often, part of the, when I talk to my students, you know, part of the research process, part of the empathy that interviews is to build a relationship mm-hmm. with that person because they're going to be much more receptive to coming back to it, versus you didn't, or you did some sort of cold survey, you never talked to the people, they're gonna think, like, who are you? You're not me. Yeah. You know? And so, I think that's another part I've had to learn. In fact, when I teach in, in, in school, I don't know about you, but that's one of the hardest things, especially for students these days, is to go out and do interviews, mm-hmm. and to go out and do observation, mm-hmm. and to really engage with people, um, because it it's frightening, right? You know, It's easier for us to be sort of in sort of these days and read about what those people are like, um, I had one of my students actually um, working on um, a homeless um, problem for a semester, spent the night in a homeless shelter. Wow was awesome Wow! she just had great insight and yeah. and to come back to the class and said this is what it was like and and i have uh, empathy for what's and so i think that's another part i've learned over time i came from more of an engineering background but it's mm-hmm. really critical I, I think to to build those sort of bridges of insight yeah in i'll
1: uh, i'll bastardize the quote but i i believe it was steve blank I'll probably bastardize the attribution as well um i believe it was steve blank who said no product survives first Clash with the market, oh, yeah. you know, like the, the goal, um, I had, I had a buddy who, I mean, he just raised a hundred mil maybe. I mean, this company's crushing it. They're doing really well. And he's like very driven by this ethos that he shared in an article he wrote years ago. And we talked through what he said is the, the goal is to not waste your life. Right. Like the goal is to solve real problems, but it's really to not waste your life. There's an opportunity cost to choosing a problem and coming up with an idea and going to execute on it. The best thing we can do for ourselves is the early legwork to make sure we're solving the right thing for the right people Mm -hmm. in a way they need it solved. Right. Like problem solving is really important. We do it day in and day out personally, professionally, communally, etc. We've got to make sure we're exerting effort and expending energy in the right place, in the right way for the right people. If that drives us, everything else kind of falls into place. We can talk about tools and techniques, but like that approach to problem solving, if I spend my time doing this, can I do it well for the people who need it? And if not, let me go find something that I can do and let somebody else solve this problem for Mm -hmm. these people. Um, We've got to make sure we can actually
0: truly – solve the thing for the people who need it otherwise we're wasting time and that's something i think in my industry i, I mean growth software attack agiles helped but agile largely ignore what we call the discovery mm-hmm. the whole figure it out right it's i got a list prioritize go 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 and that's not to characterize all but that's generally been and When I talk about sort of building the right thing and building the thing right, I'll ask the company, what percentage of your time do you spend on each? And inevitably it's 90%, 95% on solving it right. Maybe maybe 5%. Maybe. That was the 30-minute kickoff we did. And then we just got right into problem solving. And I think that's one of the things that's hard to explain to organizations is slow down to sort of speed up. Like slow down to figure out are you really working on the right thing because often there's a due date, somebody's promised this, and the Mm -hmm. team gets in. It's like, oh, my God, we just – Got to crank it out. And yeah. and seeing it again and again, we're slowly as industry learning, but me personally and the teams that we work with, it's like, let's really nail what we're solving. And let's spend a little time coming to alignment. In fact, one of the techniques we use in ours is we do a, a problem statement, like write mm-hmm. a problem statement. Yeah. Sounds simple. Right? Can
1: I truly articulate yeah. the
0: problem? Re- they learn it's really hard. It is. And then my point is, okay, you spent 15 minutes, right? um maybe you didn't even come to alignment if you Mm -hmm. can't get alignment here you got no business going any further
1: yeah you can't agree upon the problem Mm -hmm. like how are we going to solve yeah because my
0: idea and your idea we're all just throwing ideas out there but we're not we have nothing to throw back
1: against we yeah we don't know what we're solving for yeah that's i mean there are a bunch of cliches the the measure twice cut once Mm -hmm. i mean like let's make sure we're doing the thing right um you know from my days working with the army we we said slow is smooth and smooth is fast Mm -hmm. right which means if we get the muscle memory and the mechanics and we make sure we're doing the right thing right we can do that slowly make sure we settled in and then we can go execute at pace right if we've gotten all the building blocks put in the right place and built a solid foundation we can go pressure test that pretty quickly but you know we've got to get smooth before we get fast and often we try to just go fast. That's where we yeah. that's where we haven't built the thing right, and try and go race yeah. it, and it's going to fall apart
0: real quick. Yeah, go uh, was it go fast and break things? Right? <laughs> yeah,
1: right, right. I mean that. I think that ethos did way more disservice to our industry, tech, and otherwise, because that's proliferated a bunch of other industries. You know, move fast and break things is not the. Wow. I, I understand why yeah. that statement came about. But I think we have taken it at face value to the detriment of doing things slowly and thinking. I mean, just the creating quiet space to sit and think is something that as a society, I think we've lost. Um, we, we don't create that space because we talk about productivity and billable hours, all the things that move the needle forward for us and our clients and our firms, et cetera. But like having space to like contemplate the existence of a tree, You know, (laughs) I went and I I, I, like we laugh, but like I went and put my hammock up in Bird Park with a buddy and we just kind of talked about a tree for an hour. And like, I don't think there were any psychedelics involved um, (laughs) that day, at least. But, you know, like contemplating a tree, that conversation with him in that hour has informed couple talks that I give now and, you know, conversations that I have around dinner tables and how I orient to my work with folks like NASA and the Department of Defense and like that space to be quiet and still and just contemplate, I think very much informs so much and we're losing the space because we're trying to move fast. We're trying to break things like can we just fix things a little bit? We don't have to shatter everything to rebuild it. Some things were built all right to begin with. We just got to be intentional about solving some of the small issues we we come across is my thought at least. I like it. So who have been some of your influences uh, along the way? Ooh, influences. That is a great question. Um, yeah, I – there are a handful, like locally, I've just got an incredible crop of, of mentors. And I think in the tech world, particularly when I was building high growth, scalable tech companies, um, a lot of my peers, I mean, I really appreciate, given how quickly tech moves, mm-hmm. I appreciate the people in the space now, right? Cause like even five, six years removed, I shut my last company down two and a half, three years ago. I already feel like I'm out of the game. You know, like I've changed industries, I've changed my work a little bit. Um, I already feel like I'm behind the eight ball. And so to look at folks who did things years ago is tough for me, given how quickly we're moving. Um, So a lot of my peers, I mean, I think about Tommy Nicholas over at Alloy, Um, constantly pushing me, and he's local, moved his company up to New York City, is doing really well. Same with Charles Merritt over a Buddy, just like, I mean, some of the guys who have been in the trenches with me around similar companies, around the same companies, um, those folks to this day um, have just been incredible influences, and and like, iron sharpens iron or whatever. I don't know if any Mm -hmm. of us are iron, but um, I, I do know that we can commiserate together about the suck, as we call it. Um, And that's important to know that somebody else is going through what you have. But we can also, you know, celebrate and push and challenge each other. And we've done that, you know, for the decade of my career. And that has been the case, particularly with those two guys. Of course, my longtime co-founder, Justin, um, has just been a force in making me think a little differently about what I think I'm right about and where I think I'm wrong. And how we orient to problems and how we solve them together as teams. Um, so those are kind of the, like the core down home group. We've been building things together for a long time. Um, beyond that, as I, as I think about some of the, the founders or operators, um, Matt Wallert is, uh, is, is one he's at Clover health now. He's a behavioral scientist. Um, but he was a mentor of mine at tech stars and, you know, to this day, one of the folks I give a ring when I'm just stumped, um, when I'm when I'm struggling. You know, Matt is always a call away. Jeremy Sure um, was at Grasshopper Bank for a while. Um, he was at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I want to say before that, um, Jeremy. If I got that wrong, I'm sorry, bud. Um, but Jeremy, similar mentor from TechStars, and you know those some of those relationships are just have been great um, for me. And then uh, like. There's Cami Talez at parade um she's the founder of Parade. It's an underwear brand okay. um and cami cami was in the Techstars network. she was actually i want to say like uh one of the associates and she helped us out at my last company um and she has gone on to found and build and grow a multi million dollar underwear brand um and like uh, we talk about age a lot. I'm not that old, but I think I've got probably six, seven years on Cami and she is absolutely killing it. So to see people younger, scrappier, just crushing it. Um, so that's a long way of saying I've got folks in kind of different pockets that I've always looked up to and admire. Uh, but a lot of it kind of selfishly drives back to, hey, am I doing the best I can do? Because I get to see yeah. some really cool people do some incredible work.
0: That's awesome. A lot of times our guests are, you know, naming like – authors or those sort of things but i really love how you pull from your 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 network and people you have worked with along the way
1: yeah fortunate privileged for sure to just have an incredible group of folks i mean i i I think about the firm here Mm -hmm. um at, at envoy and we've got a small team but everybody at the top of their game so you know one of the partners a former litigator like stinson is just awesome in her own right, Scott, former British diplomat, um, you know, the consummate negotiator. I mean, I get to learn from some of the best here. Claire Jada as experienced designers, like people who think very intentionally about how a space is laid out to get our work done, how we feel in the environment, like people from their relative disciplines that give me nuggets to do what I do as a mediator, as a facilitator. Um, so much better. And, you know, if we're not looking and constantly scanning for people right in our immediate orbit to see how they do things a little different, I think we're missing just these incredible opportunities to pick things up and do things a little better and then, you know, give back and attribute some of those learnings to the folks we get to see every day.
0: I really like that. So last question here or next to last question right. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, What are some of the Lessons you've learned along the way. I mean, you, you talked about some of the techniques you use, but really what are those lessons you can impart on our audience about problem solving? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: big one, and I, I say this often. Uh, control what you can control and influence the variables. Um, we get so hung up on things. I, I know for me, um, with as much ego as I have sometimes, and, uh, you know, the, the amount of, like, personality that i bring to the table like i end up getting what i want a lot and when i don't i get really frustrated and and like i'm aware of that and i'm working actively i'm sure my therapist would uh would tell me i'm not doing enough but um we're, we're working on it she's great um that control piece is tough and i think we get really hung up on what we can control um we get hung up even more so though on what we can't control And so if we, like, set the things we can't control, like, we've got to identify that. Can I actually control this thing? What am I frustrated about? Can I control it? Um, Then we can settle into, yeah, all right, this is out of my control. It's okay because we've got that second piece. Influence the variables. And so can I start nudging things in the right direction? Even if I don't have direct control, I do have some implicit power in the environments in which I exist in. How I interact, if I'm empathetic or if I'm like drawing a hard line, if I'm a bull in a china shop or if I'm being diplomatic. I mean, a million ways to influence things that might be out of our control. Can I be in the right place all the time so when it's the right time I'm there? I mean, a million ways to to influence. And I think we, we try to control more and don't influence enough. And I think we ought to recalibrate a little bit there. So that would be the first one. I mean... That was a lesson passed along to me 15 years ago from some young captain in the army in the middle of the woods in North Carolina Mm -hmm. and like just gave me this nugget that I have carried, don't even remember his name, but carried that nugget for forever. I I think that's a big one. The second big lesson from dear mentor of mine, Art Sb, here in Richmond, Art's incredible, Now, you said a a bad decision won't kill your company. The lack of a decision will. And so I think we get really hung up on, am I solving the problem perfectly? And that's important. We've got to do the legwork. We don't want to waste our life. All of the the appropriate caveats. But a bad decision won't kill your company. The lack of a decision will. It's like riding a bike. We just got to keep pedaling at some point. And we may not know that we're doing the right thing, we've got to do something. Um, What he didn't say and what I've kind of added to contextualize is if we have good people and had good data going into that decision. So we may not get the thing right. But if we've collected data appropriately, be it the discovery process or asking questions or empathizing, like if we've collected decent data and we've got a good team of people who are willing and able to go through the process, right, and we make a decision and it's the wrong decision. Because that happens sometimes, often even, if it's the wrong decision and we've got good people around and had decent data. What I posit is that the right decision is probably not far away. Um, But what I know is that if we've got a really good team, we can – unscrew up a thing, if you, if you will, we can rectify a problem and get to a better answer with the new information that we've just collected on why a thing went wrong, why it didn't work, why it didn't hit the mark the way we needed it to. We can recalibrate pretty quickly with good people around and an understanding of what data we had, why the decision didn't work, and then new data, that tightening of feedback loop. Um, so that's an... In, those two things, like... Let go of what we can't control, focus on influencing some variables, and then understand that even if we miss the mark and make a bad decision, that's not the end all if we've got good people around and can like, look at our notes and then recalibrate and keep moving. Um, I, those two big things, I'd say, are like lessons that dictate how I operate in the world these days.
0: Those are awesome. And I think the last one, it reminded me kind of the bias towards action, right? You yeah. know, it's sort of like, take some action. Absolutely. Learn something. Yeah. Right, and and get it with data, and and come back versus just, you know, pontificating about lots of, uh, things.
1: As as founders, as decision makers, our job is to aggregate data points and make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. We are never going to have perfect information, perfect data, going into a decision. Never, um, data is information is often historical, mm-hmm. and so we're looking at the past to make decisions and. The future is what we're solving for. So we're always going to be a little misaligned in the information we have at our hand and the decision we need to make. If we get comfortable, comfortably uncomfortable, perhaps with that, we can keep cruising and probably doing good because a lot of people stop when they hear no, or when they think they've screwed up, which means there's less competition on the other side of that. No. right. I tell my students that all the time In every no, there is opportunity. And so if we get over that little hurdle, you figure 95% of folks stop when they hear that can't happen. The 5% who got over that hurdle are just playing in a green field by themselves with no competition. I mean, that's where we want to be. We've got to have good people and good data and good process, good technique uh, to get there. But if we do, we put ourselves in a good place.
0: Awesome. So. Really last question this time. What kind of <laughs> what do you listen to these days? I'm always interested in what people are uh, listening to. I look around the studio here. Yeah. The guitars and all kinds of great. So thanks for inviting us in uh, the studio here at Envoy. This is absolutely awesome. So absolutely.
1: No, thrilled to have you all over. Um yeah, so you know, I get podcasts sent to me often. Um interestingly enough, and I realize the irony of being on a podcast, I'm like I I'm deeply music oriented. Mm-hmm. So when I have free time, I don't listen to podcasts or anything but music. Um, so right now, I've been on a, uh, like Manchester Orchestra is one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, Michigander is a new band that I've really been digging. They happen to be playing in Denver with Manchester in February, so I'm flying out for that. Go hang out with my best friend. Um, Little Sims just dropped a new album, and that is just front-to-back bangers, like instant classic of an album. Um, so I, I kind of jump genres, got a little hip hop in there, got a little rock. I grew up playing classical guitar, have since over the past years playing in bands, more of an indie kid. Um, so I will listen to any and everything. Um, but yeah, I'd say Michigander is like high on the list right now. Little Sims and that album I've been working through. Um, And then I just picked up uh, some new Miles Davis, well, old Miles Davis, new to me on vinyl from Blue Bones the other day. Um, So really digging that, too. It's
0: it's funny you mention that. We've had some weird sort of connections here. So I'm I'm kind of a deadhead, but I've been going through Miles' back catalog. Yeah. uh, Everywhere from, you know, Milestones to, of course, kind of Blue, even up to Sketches of Spain, you know, that sort of late 50s, early 60s time period. And When I work... I have to have headphones on and some music that's just sort of a jam going on where yep. I'm not, like, you know, reciting it. But I'll find some – either old Miles or Cannonball. Or I'm an old deadhead, so I'll find some sort of okay. you know, dark star, 45-minute dark star from the early 70s. And just put headphones on. But that's how I flow. And to your same point, yeah. even though I create a podcast, I'm horrible about listening to podcasts. I, I don't podcasts. to them, no. I know. But I just want to no. listen to music when I have some, some time. I,
1: And, like, mindless music sometimes. So yeah, explosions in the sky, um, this will destroy you, the album leaf, like – just straight instrumentals, no vocals is like what I prefer to work to, um, which is really great. but like when I'm jamming at the at the house, pull the guitars out, as you noted, I keep a guitar here yeah. in the studio. Um, just like like jamming is something easy. and so I'm all over the all over the place musically. just got some Coltrane when I picked up uh, Miles nice. Davis too, a live album um, uh, he's got a few of my favorite things on that and a couple others. And so, yeah, I'll kind of listen to anything.
0: if It's got a good groove and a good melody. That's awesome. So we'll drop some of the links in uh, the program. So Love Ace it. Man, it's been awesome hanging out and having a conversation. I appreciate you coming on the program.
1: I appreciate you coming over to the studio, but yeah. mostly appreciate you having me. This is uh, always fun hanging out. Awesome.
0: All right, take care, everybody.
1: All right.